VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, September the 22nd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams is producing the program. We're looking forward to speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So, as you hear reported repeatedly from all media outlets, preparations continue for what might be a pretty serious storm with Hurricane Fiona. Again, I have no earthly idea when and how it's going to touch down on this particular province. It looks like Nova Scotia is really in the crosshairs, but of course we're going to see some storm activity, especially in the southwest coast. So hopefully you're, uh, in the, hopefully you are prepared. So we're going to offer some municipal leaders in that part of the province. If you'd like to give your residents a few updates today in the preparations that you're doing and where the residents can turn, if and when things become as nasty as they look they might become, we're going to offer those municipal leaders so, Tom, here on the program uh, this morning, a couple of Canada on the world's sporting stage notes here this morning. So, it was just a few days ago, uh, in the world of basketball, women's basketball in this case, Canada's women are the world champions of three-on-three basketball. I didn't even know there was such a thing as world championships for three-on-three basketball, but I guess there's world championships for just about everything, but we're on the top step. And if you're a golf fan, this is a pretty good week. So, the President's Cup. It's not quite the mystique and the sachet that the Ryder Cup has. Of course, the Ryder Cup steeped in history, the United States versus uh, Europe. And it's brilliant. One of the greatest uh, sporting events on the calendar. It happens every two years. But this year, it's the President's Cup. So it's the 14th edition. The United States have dominated the international. So it's everyone outside of Europe is eligible to qualify for the President's Cup. So in the 14, the 13 passed, so the states have won 11. The internationals won one. There's been one tie. But there's a good Canadian contingent involved with it this year. You know, Mike Weir had been a member of that club, uh, that team, many, many times. Now he's one of the assistant coaches, again, or assistant captains, pardon me, again this year. But we've got two players on the team for the very first time ever. Corey Connors and Taylor Pendrith will be in the lineup. Of course, the coaches have to make decisions about who sits, but they will inevitably all get to play, especially when it comes to singles on Sunday. But I'm going to cozy up to the President's Cup a little later today, after we have a great show, that is. All right. So, first published on the 12th of May of 1946, then called the Sunday Herald, made its debut. And apparently, the first edition of the Sunday Herald sold 10,000 copies in a couple of hours. And now, some 75 years plus later, the Newfoundland Herald are closing their doors. It's a pretty sad loss, I think, anyway. So, whether it be based on the Corey and Trina great song on the cover of the Newfoundland Herald, they covered so many different things. You know, human interest stories, business, politics... And I guess what many people turned to was the TV guide. Now on our TVs ourselves, we can just go to a particular channel and get the rundown of what's coming up in this half hour or hour and throughout the day. So it became less of an attraction for the Herald. I mean, things have changed so quickly. Not only in the world, say, broadsheet newspapers, what have you, and they're struggling. Some of them are struggling mightily. Many have closed their doors. But there goes by the wayside the Newfoundland Herald. It's sad to see, and for those folks who are currently working, for the company, they're going to continue online with some sort of online presence to, you know, post some of the archival content that they have. But I'm sorry to see these people lose their jobs, and I'm sorry to see it go by the wayside. You know, it is pretty much an icon in the broadcast world or the media world here in this province. And now, after 75-plus years, the Newfoundland Herald is gone. 
that's really unfortunate to say the very least. So I'd be curious, and I'm sure they have this uh, number on hand at the Newfoundland Herald. How many times has X, Y, and Z been on the cover? Whether it be the Queen, which I would imagine probably leads the league, because they were always staunch coverers. Uh, they provided staunch coverage of the British royal family over the years. And, of course, our good friends at NTV and Oz FM who have been on the cover so many times. Uh, so, anyway, if you have a comment on the Herald, you know, some people, they bought it every week, no matter what. No matter what. It became a habit. You go to the grocery store, say, for instance, and you just grab the Herald. Some people, that's where they grab their edition of the Telegram, for instance, on a daily routine. But there goes the Newfoundland Herald. Sorry to see it go. And for those of you who are working for the Herald, or if you're one of the former employees, I see some people quoted in the news stories, whether it be Ryan Cleary or Jeff Meeker or others. Bob Hallard actually was one of the managing editors at the Herald over the years. So you want to share some of your memories of what the Herald meant to the province, what it meant to you, then we can entertain those stories for sure here today. One picture that belongs on the cover of the Newfoundland Herald is the car in the Humber River. I mean, what's actually going on there? You know, I see someone tweet out about, it's a drone shot, an overhead shot of the car in the middle of the river, and referring to the fact that it's a world-class salmon river, which is true. But even if there wasn't a fish in the river, first, how'd the car get there? And secondly, who's going to do anything about it? So apparently law enforcement says it's not their jurisdiction. It's got to be, I assume, here at this point, it's the provincial government. But people know it's been there for a long, long time, and yet it remains in the middle of the Humber River. So obviously there's ways to retrieve the car. It's not that complicated. It's not like we're going down to uh, recover or to seal off the oil leakage in the Manolis L. It's right there in the middle of a river. So if the province is responsible for getting that vehicle out, because it's not like it's leaking millions of barrels of oil or what have you, but there's all sorts of fluids in that car that I assume are now part of the Humber River, but let's get the car out of the river. It's just remarkable that these things happen. And, you know, it's all the finger-pointing of who is responsible. Should it be the city of Cornerbrook or Steadybrook, or is it the province, or is it a federal issue? We don't know. I don't care. But it would be nice if the folks who live in and around the Humber River Valley, they'd like to see that car gone like everyone would. It's just that stuff, by what goes on. Right, let's move on to education. We talk about education. Well, we try to put it on the front burner because our long-term prosperity and uh, sustainability in this province in large part relies on a well-educated public. And we've got a lot of work to do. Good people working in the education system, of course there are. But we also talk about it in the envelope of inclusive education. At this moment in time, we really just use it as a word as opposed to implementing a concept and putting all the supports that are required in place, on time. Let's start with Memorial University. I remember this story when it happened. There's a fellow named William Sears. He needed a, an accommodation because he's hard of hearing. So he had this unit that he asked the, it's an FM transmitting microphone. He asked for the professor to wear it. She said no. And the reasons offered are really quite flimsy. Apparently this lady uh, practiced some form of mysticism. And the quote in the story says, It focuses on personal experience and a personal, individualized search for the truth. Had she had to put this microphone on, it would provide significant disruption and substantial interference with the spiritual balance that must, according to her religion, always prevail. Poppycock. You know, if we have students who are looking to better themselves, looking to be educated for the purpose of long-term, meaningful, gainful employment, then this kind of stuff is just ridiculous. You know, when you take on a role such as a professor or a teacher in a school, your sole duty 
is to accommodate and to educate your students, regardless of who they are, where they are, man or woman, or regardless of their disabilities or exceptionalities. So how can this stand? So now Mr. Sears, through seven years later, there was a human rights inquiry and the commission. He's been awarded some $10,000 in damage. You know, a little bit too late, I would suggest. So she had even been provided a letter from the school that said she would not be required to wear such microphones to provide a spiritual imbalance. Ugh. So the university is going to appeal now. Really? How much is that going to cost to appeal? When in fact, regardless if they think there's errors in law on this front, their professors, tenured or otherwise, need to provide whatever accommodations are required by individual students. They didn't sign up simply for fun. They registered for a class, whether it be a thirst of, for knowledge, curiosity, or part of their major on the road to graduation or convocation. But nope, that didn't happen. So those types of stories are really simply not good enough. Yes, you can be religious and faithful and spiritual all you like, but in the role of a teacher on the job, being paid, tenured or otherwise, how could it possibly be acceptable that someone be unwilling to do something as innocuous as simply put the microphone on your lapel so that one of your students paying top dollar to go to university can be accommodated so they can hear what you're actually saying. You know, the lecture. The lecture is spoken aloud in combination with other written materials and what have you, but there you go. So William Sears, I don't know if we spoke with William Sears at the time. We may have, but I remember covering that story, and we'll see where it lands. And in the K-12 system, I am curious to see what the outcome will be for the human rights inquiry into Carter Churchill. Of course, Carter needs some additional supports in school. He's deaf and needs someone who's fluent in American Sign Language to be there, not just sporadically throughout the, uh, the school week, but to be there so he gets a fighting chance at an education, an equitable chance. So if the ruling goes in favor of the family, the Churchill family, and we see a ruling that says accommodations were not met, the mandate of the school district and the Department of Education was not met, Carter Churchill had been left behind, then that will be a ruling that I think will have a ripple effect throughout the system. Because we know, and if you're a parent of a school-aged child who needs some additional support, maybe it's not there on day one of the school year, maybe it's not what you need it to be, maybe your child is falling behind simply because they don't have those additional supports that they need, then you should call the show and tell us what's going on in your, your child's school because this is important stuff. It just really, truly is. Because how many students just do need a little bit of a leg up? Someone to help with either reading or writing or they're on the spectrum or they have a learning disability or they're deaf, whatever, mobility issues. We cannot have it to be only the quote-unquote, what's the proper word to say here, the student who doesn't need any additional support. They can't be the only ones that get, get a fighting chance in school. So those two particular issues, whether it be post-secondary or K-12, are going to be interesting to follow along. And we need to do everything we can to see that everyone has a fighting chance to be well-educated. And we should knock off letting people quit school at 16. <laughs> so I'll throw that in there. Okay, let's move off onto the government side on the revenue business. I saw someone post a tweet yesterday regarding going to one grocery store or another and one pharmacy or another, and they've expanded their offering of self-checkouts. Now, for business, profit is not a bad word. It's simply not. And efficiency rules the roost. Productivity is critically important. Canada has a problem on both sides. But I don't know if you use the self-checkout. I try to resist. Why? 
because the automation has taken away a job. And it might not be huge numbers of jobs lost because of self-checkouts, but many are, and more will be in the future. The concept for me is okay, so the companies can do as they see fit. I mean, they're not breaking any laws by doing these things, but should governments pay more attention to this world of automation? Not to stem it, not to push it back, not to disallow it, but in the side of the revenue. So should there be some sort of additional levy or fee or tax applied to a company that uses all these self-checkouts and other automation inside their operations? I don't know. It sounds like a heavy hand. It sounds like government overreach. But, you know, if we're all concerned with the economy, we're all concerned with the revenue base, tax and otherwise, then this is a surefire way for companies to reduce the amount of people that get a job, reduce the numbers of uh, the amount of taxes collected by provincial governments and the federal government. I don't know. I'll throw it out there, but, you know, before we know it, there will be an awful lot more of it. And it's not the end of the world, but there is something to be said for jobs lost. Especially, and I don't know how we even factor this in. We've got a discrepancy between the number of job vacancies and the percentage of wage hikes compared to consumer price index, inflation pressures, all those types of things. So there's a perfect storm brewing, and governments move at a snail's pace at the very best of times. But these things and so many other things require immediate solutions, real hard work, and some real vision. Sometimes we're a bit lacking on, on that front. Okay, let's move into a specific industry here. Oil and gas. Now, what the future holds for this province and the country in oil and gas is up for debate. You know, there are going to be massive opportunities associated with natural gas, liquefied and otherwise. And the oil business is still a big part of the national economy, even though we talk about it as if it's the real critical pillar in the economy, but the reality is it's about 5% of GDP. In this province, much more. In Alberta, much more. And as much as people think everyone's trying to kill it, we're producing more oil in this country at this moment in time than ever before, than ever before. So the industry is not dead. In this province, everyone's familiar with the land sales at the CNLOPB. And there was years ago, records were set for single bids and for parcels bids and for the annual sum total of bids. And it hasn't been that way in the last few years. When a company makes a bid, they put forward a commitment, like in this case, BHP Billiton, which is a merge now between that large oil company and Woodside Energy. This is coming from all Newfoundland and Labrador, and they do good work at that particular media outlet. So they're Australian-based. They bought two parcels in 2018 valued at $822 million. One of the bids was $621 million just for one single parcel of land. When they do that, that's a commitment to see that amount uh, associated with further exploration in the land that they bid on and were successful in bidding on. They put down a 25% deposit. Now, after all of that money had been spent, or that was the money put forward by this particular company, now they're walking away. You know, the opposition is asking why. It's a fair question. I don't know if the province has any understanding as to why. Apparently, Minister Parsons did indeed speak to uh, leadership in this company, as I'm told. So why they walked away, it'd be helpful to know. Just like everything else in this world. Why a nurse left, why a doctor left, why whatever professional or whatever industry partner leaves and walks away from their interest in the province, it'd be nice to know why. So that we can cover those gaps to see it happen fewer and fewer times in the future. But they're gone away. That does mean, though, there's some $200 million in revenue that it will be paid to the province. I guess in the form of a penalty or a a fine or what have you, or just based on their contractual obligations when they made that bid, but they're walking away. 
we'll all have to wait and see now what Equinor does with their massive prospect out in the Flemish Pass because a lot of people will be relying on that. All right. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? Let's get going. Uh, later this morning, the Minister of Health Community Services, Tom Osborne, will be coming on the program. They contacted us. They want to come on and talk specifically about emergency rooms, but we'll talk about anything that you think is important, and I'm happy to pose questions on your behalf. And this is not to deflect from provincial responsibility in trying to shore up the healthcare system because it's in shambles for many people. And I think it's absolutely appropriate for many people to say it's in a crisis. And again, not to deflect from the provincial issues, but it really does require some leadership and guidance from the federal government as well. Not only just about the amount of money transferred to the provinces in the healthcare transfer dollar, but if you listen to the fellow, or pardon me, the person who is now the president of the Canadian Medical Association, Dr. Alika Lafontaine, who's an anesthesiologist in Grand Prairie, goes out to talk about emergency room closures in some of the big cities throughout southwestern Ontario, in Quebec, Ottawa, the wait times in emergency rooms in Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, and the staffing shortages experienced by so many provinces at different levels of healthcare workers. So the doctor goes on to say, and here's the quote, all of these things are not normal things for Canadians to experience, so we are at a critical point. If you can't access services, that literally does mean collapse. We have to reimagine the healthcare system. It feels great to have the universal health care that we enjoy in this country, but we've rested on that laurel for far too long. It's not working the way it's intended to work. It's simply not. So whether it be preventative medicine and for us all to make individual concerted efforts to be healthier and or the reactive system that we currently have in place here, we basically only deal with you if you're sick as opposed to try to keep you healthy. And I don't. they sound like the same thing, but they're not. So if the Canadian Medical Association president is talking like that, and they're talking about, you know, an injection of money, but I think we've, we've understood over the years in this province, it's not simply about money. It's just not. Healthcare spend is massive in this province or right across the country. The healthcare outcomes have not been in line or commensurate with the money spent. So it can't be all just about money. So to try to figure that out, I know the federal government will say health is a provincial responsibility, and it is. But... When you have things like disjointed accreditation across the country for different healthcare professionals and the paper warfare, time and effort and money it takes to even come to this province on a locum, whatever it is, everything from scratch has to be reimagined. What you really kind of need is what the health accord means for this province and a 10-year plan to hopefully make it better, and more streamlined, more efficient, more accessible. A national health accord probably makes a lot of sense at this moment and that will be a heavy lift, no doubt. But if it's not working here, and it's not working in southwestern Ontario, I mean, because when you add up the population of Quebec and Ontario, it's a huge percentage of the population of the country. And if it's not working there, and the wait times in Toronto and Montreal, Vancouver, emergency room closures and diversions, then we've got to figure this out on the federal level as much as they'd like to just shirk responsibility and say, we give you money, you fix it yourself. All right. A couple of very, very quick ones. You know, social media can be helpful. Far too often it's not. And people who want to be influencers on social media and privacy concerns associated with social media, if you have to actually talk with your child or an adult in your life about TikTok challenges, I hate to even bring this up. It just sounds so absolutely patently stupid. But remember when Tide Pods, people were encouraged to eat a Tide Pod? <laughs> Laundry detergent. And what happened? They went to the hospital. Why? Because they ate something that was poisonous. 
Now, apparently, there's a new challenge out there, and someone in this province apparently has taken up the challenge. If people have been encouraged to cook chicken with NyQuil. <laughs> and people are falling for it. They just want to be part of something. So it sounds like something that's just absolutely absurd, and we should never have to concern ourselves with it. But teenagers in particular are getting sick, and some are dying because they're taking up these stupid challenges. So, you know, as much as you might feel, what kind of fool am I to say to my, my teenager this evening over supper, please don't take up the, cha the, the challenge to eat a Tide Pod or cook chicken when I'm not home with a bottle of NyQuil. Apparently the concentration of the NyQuil becomes unmanageable for the body, changes the properties of the medicine in a certain way, but just imagine, we've got to think and talk about that kind of stuff. Ugh. All right, we're on Twitter. Uh, follow us there. Our email address is openlinefeosim.com. When we come back, we're taking your call, so give us a shout during this break. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's begin on the top of the board, line number one. Say good morning to the president at NAEP. That's Jerry Earl. Good morning, Jerry. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, to you and your listeners. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So we're, we're led to believe that the province delivered a contract offer to your union yesterday. Is that the case? There has been a contract offer that's been delivered to our union back some weeks ago now, actually, Patty. Okay. Uh, and the process that's ongoing is where we're actually commenced ratification of that agreement yesterday. So no different in the past. Uh, during the ratification process, uh, the information is out to our members now. Uh, getting with the times, it's through an electronic process where a member, whether they're on vacation, whether they're working, whether they're ill, uh, whatever, they can actually now participate and vote the process. So that's ongoing, uh, and we'd certainly be in a position next week when we can talk about the outcome and the actual contract uh, that's being proposed. Because at this point, it's a tentative agreement, uh, and members in 21 separate bargaining units uh, that we represent across the entirety of the province are basically started their process at 9 o'clock yesterday morning. Are you able to share some of the high-level details, like the amount of, or the percentage of pay hikes offered or what have you? Uh, unfortunately, Patty, we would not, and I don't want to be accused of basically trying to influence anything, because what we say is one member, one vote, uh, and members will get to look at the details. They received that yesterday, or some that are still accessing information because uh, proper email may not have been in place. So that is playing out as we speak. Uh, and like I said, once we get through that, we would be happy to talk with you or anybody next week uh, once that process concludes early part of next week, and gladly we'll do so. Fair ball. Uh, this is a general broad stroke question, but we just saw the resolution of the strike out of the city of Mount Pearl. We harken yeah. back to the prolonged strike, out or uh, lockout, pardon me, of DJ Composites and Gander. We've seen it happen in Labrador. Is it time to talk about timelines associated with job action, whether it be lockouts or strikes? Because when they drag on, it poses all sorts of problems, even for a return to work and the workplace itself. You know, should there be timelines with the automatic implementation of conciliators or mediators or arbitration, binding or otherwise? Because there's a changing world regarding organized labor and job action. Not to suggest your members are going to do anything of the sort, but just as a union leader, do you think it's time to implement some of these things so that there's more certainty associated for all sides and the residents impacted? And, and Patty, I can certainly speak to a recent strike that we had. You're familiar with the Lily 9 that we had a prolonged strike, an unnecessary strike, and a strike that should not have lasted. Uh, there's mechanisms that exist in labor legislation now that a minister or ministers could implement. Uh, we actually wrote the minister in the early days of that strike, just a couple of weeks in, asking for this process to be implemented, and we were basically told that there would be no interference. It's not interference. The process exists in legislation that basically says when the parties need guidance. Because strikes are 
bargaining number one is difficult, but once you get into an actual strike, it becomes much, much more difficult because usually both sides, union employer, uh, as a position, they'll get entrenched in those positions. So it takes a third party sometimes to guide us. Conciliation is one of those processes, but there's much more uh, regime-type processes that's there that, unfortunately, uh, governments past and present, both, uh, have been asked, and I, and I, like I said, I can speak to Lily Strike. We actually asked uh, for an ad- additional process to be uh, looked into, and the response was no. Let's move into healthcare, Jerry. That's one of the reasons we wanted to speak with you today. You know, when people look at the well, system, they think that, you know, the representative groups like the the uh, Registered Nurses Union and the Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association, they're the go-to umbrella uh, managers or, pardon me, uh, representative groups. But your group also represents many in the healthcare system, whether it be paramedics, I think PCAs, uh, pardon me, personal care attendants, some pr- licensed practical nurses. This is about the lack of consultation with your group based on some of the emergency room conversations uh, of the past couple of weekends. Don't come unless it's an emergency. You say you wanted to be consulted before these decisions or messages were crafted and broadcasted. What kind of consultation is required on this front, in your opinion, because the state of the system and the need to ask for people to step up and come in and help is real. So what does consultation look like? Absolutely, Patty. And one thing healthcare workers will always do, the ones we represent in other unions when there is crisis situations, we've seen it for the last 30 months. We've seen it in the most unfortunate incident again. Healthcare workers will always step up and do what's necessary uh, to support the communities and those that's looking for care, whether in emergency departments or long-term care facilities. I always say healthcare is a team, uh, and I liken it to a chain. If one chain that link or one link in that chain is weakened, or multiple links are weakened, then the whole chain itself is compromised. So we represent, like you said, we represent the nurses we represent: licensed practical nurses, personal care attendants, and. I always joke to say I almost need a rolling list to show the people that we represent because uh, we sometimes hear about cardiac surgeries being cancelled. It's not because of the cardiac surgeon. It's actually because the cardioperfusionist technologies that we represent, only seven in the entire province, at one point we were down to four, were not available. Uh, airway management, a critical aspect, that's a respiratory therapist. If you go in for a CAT scan, uh, that's people in our lab and x-ray. You're looking for addictions counselling, that's social workers. So a wide scope of healthcare providers, and I said the nurses we represent, because we had an incident a few weeks before the emergency one, uh, and it seemed like the care of our seniors were lessened uh, when a similar call, and it wasn't even noticed, uh, in a facility in Placentia where they needed uh, licensed practical nurses because there was not enough staff to care for seniors. Healthcare is a, and I think in your premier, it, it's very complex in this province. Uh, we're not seeing the results, so. There's a whole number of things, and I have to say, in recent weeks, we've had some good dialogue with the current minister. There are things that we have to do, uh, and coming from healthcare, I always look at it as, number one, you've got to assess the situation, you've got to stabilize, and then start treating. We're at a stage now where we have to stabilize our healthcare system in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, it seems like government's finally recognized we've got a crisis. We've been saying that now, or I've been saying it for six years. Uh, but finally, they come to realize that we do have a crisis in healthcare. So the first thing is recognize we have a problem. 
and then starting to deal with it. And I always talk about, Patty, not recruitment and retention, retention and recruitment, because we have to keep the people that we have in the system because they are leaving. Uh, so that's what we've working on immediately now, a mechanism to keep people in the system in classifications that we've identified uh, that are short, just like I talked about the cardioperfusion technologists. We've got to keep those individuals and then find a way to bring others in. And we're already working on some of that with our, the nurses we represent, licensed practice nurses, like additional seats in colleges. So next year and the year after, we'll, we'll graduate more because we know we need more. So that's just some of the things, but it's got to be done in collaboration. It's got to be done with all the stakeholders. And we represent like three separate bargains in healthcare, and we're prepared, and our frontline members, Patty, are prepared to be at that table. Are you trying to establish a standalone bargaining unit for licensed practical nurses? That is something that some licensed, excuse me, some licensed practical nurses, it's a complex issue. Uh, one, I have said to licensed practical nurses that three licensed practical nurses came met with me personally back a couple of years ago and said, what's the pros and cons here? I, wa- I used to be a licensed practical nurse, by the way. That's when I, I started off, like I held a number of positions. So I understand the challenge, but it's not as simple as saying we want their union. While I'm in this position, we'll always consult with licensed practitioners when they reach out to do so, as a group of LPNs did, and actually went back and reported to a group. I've seen the actual written documentation went back, and we'll do it again tomorrow. We actually have a licensed practical nurse committee within NAEP that's a stand-in committee of NAEP that would gladly look at, but people got to understand there's pros and cons to everything. And once that you say, and as now that the union has to do it, because we can approach government and be 110% supportive, but if the Department of Health says no, it won't happen. Because it's, it's a certification process, and it, it's very complex, uh, but it's not one that I can tell you, well, I've been in this office that we've ever said no to the nurses that we represent. I always believe you have to educate people, here's what the pros and cons are, and then make a decision how to move forward. And I, I would say very quickly that, you know, whoever is representing whoever as a member of the healthcare profession, uh, let's let them do what they're trained to do. I'm just so tired of thinking about this and talking about that, whether yes. it be an LPN, a nurse practitioner, a social worker, pharmacist, whatever the case may be, paramedic, if they're trained and accredited and licensed to do it, let's just let them do it. Not for this territorial yeah. nonsense. And I couldn't agree with that more, Patty. Like, it's one thing with the regional health authorities. We got a, our nurses that we represent, licensed nurses, able to do certain skills in St. John's that they're not allowed to do, for example, uh, in rural Newfoundland, or they got certain skills they can do with the central regional health authority. They're not allowed to do the laboratory or Grenfell. Let people practice their scope of practice. Like I said, a paramedic in St. John's is a paramedic in Cornerbrook. A licensed practical nurse in Arbor Britain is a licensed practical nurse in Goose Bay, and it's time that these regional health authorities recognize the professionals for what they are and let them practice to the scope of practice because they're licensed and they're, they have a scope they can operate in. But if you're saying to a licensed practical nurse in central Newfoundland that you can only do this, knowing that the licensed practical nurse at PVT in St. John's can do more, that's totally unfair to that profession. Appreciate the time this morning, Jerry. Thank you very much, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Jerry Earl, of course, the president at NAEP. Before we get to the break, we're going to speak with Helen on four. Helen, you're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. Morning. Happy uh, first day of fall. Thank you. The very same to you. And uh, I just have some good news, and I want to make an announcement that there's a free event tomorrow, and it's open to the public, and I thought the, the uh, audience would like to hear about it. Okay. Go ahead. So t- Tomorrow, Friday, 
September the 23rd at 11 a.m. at the Basilica Cathedral of St. John's the Baptist. The Portuguese Navy in their white uniforms will be there. Uh, they will be holding what's called a liturgy of the word. It takes about probably a half hour. And the uh, Navy, Portuguese Navy ship, the NRP Setubal, will arrive in St. John's Harbor on Friday morning. Then they will proceed uh, to the Basilica. And, Patty, the reason that they're doing this is uh, these uh, Navy uh, officers and sergeants are here to remember their ancestors, which were the grandfathers in some cases, of the lost Portuguese fishermen that were lost uh, on the Grand Banks of Newfoundland that were part of the familiar white fleet that came into our St. John's Harbor. Uh, they have a rich history here, uh, for, uh, for sure. It's uh, curious to say that someone sent me a video file of a land and sea episode from 1967 about the White Fleet. It was stunning. I actually watched it the other day. And so, of course, they there's lots of Portuguese uh, history here in the province. Some of it not as great as the White Fleet, you know, whether it be the statue of uh, uh, Caspar, what's his name, uh, Real, Caspar Corte Real up on the parkway. So, But the White Fleet is, is cool stuff. And I think there's a Navy ship here already, right? Well, the Navy ship is arriving on Friday morning. Okay, Friday morning. And uh, they'll be here until Monday morning. So it took a 12-day voyage to get across here. But I think it's, uh, I think it's just quite sentimental uh, that they're sending a Navy crew over here to remember, you know, the, the lost fishermen. I can't imagine them out on the Grand Banks fishing. We know about our inshore fishermen. But when you hear about those fishermen in the same size boats out there on the Grand Banks off the... Uh, schooners off the white fleece so it's a bit of history and our connection you know 400 or 500 years with the portuguese so um i i was there presently uh, uh in 2017 they were here in 2018 and 19 and now there's COVID. but uh, patty the first time i heard about it i was on the work I was on my way to work in 2017 and i heard you announce it on the vocm so uh, that's how I found out about it, and I was so glad that I went there. So I just wanted to call in today to let your viewers know that this is happening. Uh, and, that, and just to let the audience know, the year that I went there in 2017, there was only 12 people there from St. John's in the church. So I felt it was such a low representation. I thought more people might like to come out to see this. Absolutely, and I appreciate you making time and telling us about it this morning. And, of course, people will see in their mind's eye the pictures of thousands of Portuguese fishermen delivering the uh, the statue of the Lady of Fatima back in 1955 or thereabouts yes. to the Basilica. Yeah. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Exactly. It yeah. was 1955, Patty, and I'm glad you mentioned that, too, because this uh, liturgy of the word will actually take place in front of the Lady of Fatima rather than at the altar. Okay. The main altar will be there. And uh, the last time there was about 40 people there uh, from the uh, Navy and uh, one gentleman played the trumpet. And we have a priest here from Bay Wolf. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't uh, know his name right now, but he will actually say the liturgy in Portuguese. Very cool. I appreciate the time, Helen. Thanks very much. Enjoy the ceremonies. Okay. Thank you, Patty, for announcing it. My pleasure. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. There we go. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the president of the St. John's Junior Hockey League. That's Jim Hare. 
Morning, Jimmy. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Uh, your previous caller there mentioned about today being the first day of uh, fall. And, of course, we know when fall comes, hockey's right behind it. So I just want to let the people out there know that uh, we begin our 43rd year of, with St. John's Junior Hockey League uh, starting tomorrow night with a game at uh, Bay Arena and a game at the Ken Williams uh, Stadium in Southern Shore. The defending champs are CBN, is it? No, they they would have liked to have been. Patty, that was probably one of the best games of or exciting games of hockey before a full house last year when uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Mount Pearl went out there and won it in double oh, overtime, yeah. game seven on a penalty shot. Wow. Very quickly on the Mount Pearl situation because they're late getting the glacier opened and putting the ice on. How does that complicate the schedule, Jim? Uh, they uh, had to go and look for some ice time, which they, they did, and they're going to play a couple games at Twin Rinks until everything is up and running at the uh, at the Glacier. And then at that first night, we will be sending them with the uh, championship banner from last year. Yeah, good on them. And I know you've made another move here, not only championship banner, but the, the trophy, the championship trophy. I was just so close to it a couple of years, lost a couple of game sevens. That still haunts me to this day. So it's no longer the President's Cup. You named it after the legend, Jerry Taylor. Uh, uh, you know, we couldn't have picked a better person no. to name it after uh, when it comes to uh, junior hockey, Patty, as you know. And I know Jerry's just been was an uh, icon. I mean, he was Mr. Junior Hockey in the province, no doubt about it, and he was known you know, throughout the whole province and throughout Atlantic Canada, you know, through the Don Johnson's and that, eh? So, uh, yeah, just a great guy. And you got a strong league, you know. It's one of the leagues that's endured over these decades. Many leagues have had their struggles, very public struggles, whether it be Provincial Senior or what have you, even like the Avalon East has had their struggles, as has the Central League and the Western League. But St. John's Junior Hockey has been so strong over the years. It's remarkable. Now, some of it's to do with the efforts of people like yourself, Mark Noseworthy, Jerry Taylor, and many, many others, too too many to mention. But what do you have, eight teams? Yeah, we have eight teams. Uh, very quickly, Southern Shore, St. John's. Uh, CBN, CBS, Northeast, which is uh, uh, Torbay that way, yep. uh, Mount Pearl, Avalon, and uh, Paradise came in a couple of years ago. So it's, uh, it's a pretty strong league. And, you know, Patty, we have a draft skate each year, as you're probably aware. Yep. We had 44 out this year. And out of that 44, we had 31 selected in, in the uh, draft uh, for the uh, for the new people coming into town. And that's probably, in my knowledge, probably the busiest, uh, biggest one we ever had. And uh, after that, there was, I believe, two or three other players that were at that draft skate were, were also signed. So it was a real strong skate, and all the teams obviously now are going to benefit from that and be strengthened. And I think this is going to be just a, just a dandy year this year. I re- really, really do. And for 10 bucks, uh, you know, I just don't know why people don't come out and watch it. I, it's, it's exciting hockey. I mean, these young men from 18 to 21, I mean, they're out there to play for keeps. And, yeah. uh, and well, you know, you've been involved with it. I don't, I don't have to preach to you for sure. But uh, it's it's a great, great uh, game. And uh, just encourage the fans out there to come out and just, just watch a couple games. If you think it's no good, we'll stay home, you know. But I think anybody that comes out and uh, watch it is going to be more surprised as to, as to how strong this league actually is. And one of your teams plays at our rink up the DF Barnes Arena, which is really looking good it's, uh, this year as well. So uh, exciting times ahead for junior hockey. It's a league that has a soft spot in my heart. Uh, anything else you want to tell the listeners before we say goodbye, Jim? No, I just want to say thank you to a couple of our uh, – we got the, a couple of sponsors that uh, that come aboard with us a year, year or so ago. That was the uh, Newfoundland Growlers, and they supply the player of the game. And we got Sportscraft, who do the player of the week, and they do a uh, forward defenseman goaltender of the month. And, uh, we're re- and we need sponsors. I mean, uh, most of these, I'd say most, probably 95 or more percent of these uh, young men that play are in post-secondary education, either at Mon or one of the trade colleges. And uh, and uh, in some cases, these young men have to pay to play. That's very unfortunate. But 
it's just the nature of the beast because, as you know, it does cost quite a quite a few dollars to even run a junior team, and and you know there's no such thing as equipment being given or anything like that there. But it's still it's still costly for the ice, the registration, and so on and so on. And if anybody's out there really got the deep pocket and wanted to add their name to our league, we'd be more than happy to sit down and talk to them. <laughs> no doubt you would. And yeah. you mentioned Sportscraft, man. How many sticks did we buy off Wayne and Stan over the years? You know, you thought you were a pro if you got got to go upstairs and pick one right out of the box. So great memories. Oh, yeah, great guys they were. I mean, I can't say enough what they're doing for the league and helping us out too, yeah. Terrific. Good to have you on, Jim. Good luck with the league. Okay, Patty, thanks, and I hope to see you at a game sometime during the, during the year. I'll see you there. Okay, thanks, okay, buddy. Bye-bye. Okay, take care, bye. That's Jim Herod, president of the St. John's Junior Hockey League. We'll try to get back on track with the breaks. When we come back, Mike, uh, pardon me, Mike wants to respond to something he heard from Jerry Earl, and then Howard wants to talk about there's a fence blocking right away. Where? We'll find out. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three, Howard, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Uh, this is Patty. Uh, it is. I, I talked to you about must have been uh, three or four years ago, but the same issue, and it hasn't went away, and it's just getting worse because um, Crown Land's not getting back to me anymore, and uh, I talked to him. Like, I got two grandkids coming coming down every weekend, and I got a, I got a, my regular driveway going up next to this right away. It's blocked halfway. So my grandkids come down. I got one with autism, and, uh, I mean, we got dirt bikes coming down through there, and everybody's using my... Uh, my driveway, it's, I don't think it's right. I, mean, I think they should do something about it, but they won't give me no answer. Fill us in again. Remind me, anyway, about where we were talking and what the... Just paint the picture of what we're talking about. We're talking about a right-of-way uh, between myself and my next-door neighbor in Ben Wasco. And um, it's just... Uh, he erected a fence. Uh, I guess it's a pro- probably a privacy fence. But it's going halfway across the right-of-way. So people that's using that now, you know, those big quads and everything else, I mean, you only got about five feet to get through there. Most of the time, they'll come around that, that right away, and they'll use my driveway to get through, which is not right. Uh, I mean, a public right away is for public use, not just his, right, my next-door neighbors. So sometimes the best neighbor is a fence, but in this case, it's not. No, for sure. So what are you going to do? I called, I called uh, Bragg's office in St. John's, and she got me through to uh, Cornerbrook, and um, I talked to several, or well, not several, two different people up there. Uh, I talked to the manager, I guess she was, and she put me on to another guy. I guess I'm not allowed to say any names, right? Well, it's probably not very helpful because, you know, when we only have one voice chiming in on the story, you set yourself up and or us up for some heat. But, I mean, sure. you can do whatever you like as far as I'm yeah. concerned. But, uh, so, basically, that sounds like a runaround. For sure. So, I, Patty, uh, getting down to the, the figure or whatever, we, uh, I talked to the guy in, Saint Sa- or in Cornerwork that was going to take care of my case or look at the file. And... Um, he uh, he right off of the, right off of the top he he looked at the um, Google map and he seen the defense and all that stuff and the right away and he said oh well, I used that there a couple of years ago years ago on Skidoo he said that, he said the didn't he have a bunch of uh, pipes sticking up there for posts I said yes the same place so he said leave it with me and I'll get back to you so the next day I called him just to say hello or whatever. And he couldn't. I couldn't get no answer on the phone. Phone that he called me on, and um, 
I left him a message, but he never returned the message. And Janice is doing the same thing. Or not Janice, but the lady uh, in charge over here done the same thing. She's not getting back to me. It's not fair. Uh, I mean, it's public right away. Well, I mean, and like I say this many, many times, uh, you know, not getting back to people who have genuine and legitimate concerns is ridiculous. Even if you don't get the answer you want, letting people know that you heard them, you understand, you make a decision, or you're going to do X, Y, or Z, or you're going to point them in the right direction, but not getting back to people just makes uh, the frustrations boil over. Uh, anything else quickly, uh, Howard, before I have to take one more on the news? Yeah, it's, it's not fair, Patty, because, you know, I think I deserve an answer. I don't know if you can uh, uh, get pull some strings for me or, or talk to somebody about this for me, or, because I'm, I'm at the end right now. If you send me an email with some particulars and maybe a photograph or something, I'll see what I can do. Okay, Patty, it sounds good. Oh, it's open line at VOCM.com. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Take good care. Good luck. All right, there we go. Let's go. Line one. Mike, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Great. You? Good, sir. Uh, just make a few comments on what Terry Rowe had to say. Uh, I totally agree with the fact that if you're an LPN or you're a nurse and you have uh, a scope of practice that's good in one part of the province, it most certainly should be good in, in all Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, what he, uh, and then he said, you know, if you're a paramedic in St. John's, you're the same as a paramedic in Corner Brook. And that true is, 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 a, is, a, is a true statement. However, uh, if you're a paramedic in rule, uh, we all are work for a private company. You are the same as a paramedic in Gander or, or uh, St. John's or Cornerbrook. Uh, we do all have the same scope of practice, which is wonderful. But what he, he, he failed to mention, or I guess he, he didn't think about it or didn't want to bring up, but I'm certainly going to bring it up, is the fact that if you are working in Gander or St. John's or Cornerbrook for a hospital, you're making 6 or $8 more than if you're working for a private company. And that most certainly has an effect on uh, on the rural health care because uh, you hear announcements all the time that, uh, well, James Payton has hired two more paramedics, or the health science has hired six or eight more paramedics. But what they don't tell you is that they didn't recruit these paramedics from, from elsewhere or, or, or new paramedics to the system. They only uh, hired them from private services that are most of the times in rural Newfoundland. Fair enough. So it, it is great to say that, uh, you know, have the same scope of practice. We are lucky that we do have all the same scope of practice and, and, and whatnot. But uh, and and, and in, in my situation, the, the company that I work for, the local I work with, we are in the Nate Union. So we're in the same union as Nate, and we have the same scope of practice as the rest of the paramedics. But because I work for private, they work for, for hospital, it, it's a big, big disadvantage pay-wise. 100% it is. And, you know, sometimes I add into the healthcare conversation that it's not all about money, but for many people it's certainly a part of the equation. How could it not be? Especially when you have the same training, have the same responsibilities, and get paid so much differently and so far so much less. Of course it's an issue. I mean, I hear from paramedics all the time. So they're not, they don't just talk about the rate of pay, but it's the burnout and it's the hours and it's on call and it's the frustration of standing in an emergency room with a patient waiting to offload and everything in combination has caused us to lose paramedics. I mean, we can hardly afford to lose any healthcare professional, but certainly when we're talking about first responders, if we have fewer, that means responsibilities add up and the frustration adds up and the burnout adds up. It's all, again, inside the whole world of the perfect storm in healthcare. This is absolutely on my list. Anyway, paramedic-related concerns for the minister when he comes on here uh, sometime in the 10 o'clock hour. So we'll put it to him because 
You know, we can talk about recruiting and retaining healthcare professionals that are in high demand. We can train a ton of paramedics here, but unless they view the field as something that is worthwhile, pays properly, they don't have the burnout that be anticipated inside of for their first 24 months, then who wants to do it? So, we've, you know, we've painted some pretty dire pictures, which is adding to the problem. But I'm, I'm going to speak to the minister about paramedics. If you had to pose one concise question to him, and I'll do it on your behalf, what is it? Well, I, I know they're working on it, but the question that I would raise and, and ask is, is, is how far they are on in incorporating all the paramedics into one uh, group or one company or one, yep. one, one, you know, that's, that's what I would ask is how close that process is. Because until that happens, until somebody is in charge of the whole island, then you're going to have issues. Absolutely. And it's, you know, I'm going to say... Four, five years ago, we were told that that was coming in a matter of months, and here we are five years later, and I have no idea how much closer we are to seeing it actually rear its head, whatever it is. If it's a multinational that comes in and takes it all over, whether when the, all the health authorities are all in the one entity and they take it all over, or it's all private, whatever the case may be, it'd be nice to know where we are. So I'll put that question to Minister Osborne for you and other paramedics. Thank you very much, Patty. Appreciate your time. You too. Take care, Mike. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, paramedics sometimes get overlooked here in this healthcare conversation. It's absolutely fine and dandy to talk about every other healthcare professional in the system. But just imagine, you know, we talk about the red alerts. Every now and then it grabs the headlines. So that means if you call for an ambulance, there's not one there. And then so many communities that have seen the ambulance that was once stationed in their community, gone. You know, you add into the issue that you have uh, some emergency rooms where clinics closed or hospitals with reduced service. And so the paramedics are taking like six-hour round trips. So then what? You know, and I'm sure they don't want to be going home thinking that, wow, something happened in my community where I work as a paramedic and I wasn't there to respond because I'm on the highway on a six-hour round trip to deliver a patient, whether it be simply a patient transfer or an emergency. All right, how are we doing out there, Dave? Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Christy. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Couldn't be better. How are you doing? I'm great. I actually spoke with you several times within the past week uh, over email. You have? Wonderful group I'm part of called Caring Cards for Seniors. Yeah. Uh, The reason for my call today is I'd like to share some information with your listeners as to what the group is all about and how it got started. Let's do it. Okay. Um, I was contacted last January by a former co-worker of mine named Mike Harrell who sent me an invite to this group. Basically, how it all got started, he was trying to visit a resident at one of the seniors' homes during the pandemic, and due to COVID-19 restrictions, he was unable to do so. Um, He sent this resident a small uh, gift, and when he became aware of how much this meant for her, it really gave him the idea to start this group. He was thinking, what a great idea for be able to reach out to seniors to brighten their day by providing them with a handmade card with an uplifting message and even a little treat. Um, so basically by creating homemade cards with an uplifting message we have been able to reach out to seniors um, during COVID with limited restrictions. Um, also some of the seniors uh, don't have any friends or family or have limited friends and family so this has been a way for us to reach out to them, put a smile, bring a smile to their face uh, with this card and with a little treat. 
and even for those seniors that do have visitors, what a great way for us to show them how much we value them and what a pivotal role they play in our community by sending in a little card and treat. I love it. You know, even just for myself, you know, you open up the mailbox and it's the same old grout in there all the time. When you get an actual letter or a postcard or something, it feels great because it's a seldom occurrence. And so even if it's not just about the pandemic, I would imagine if we're back to full normal visitation hours and all that kind of stuff, it's still going to be a big, bright smile when they get they get this kind of uh, attention from the general public. There was a, another uh, class, I think it was, that had a pen pal issue with one of the seniors' homes, and they loved it. Both sides loved it. You know, tell them about things from your childhood if you're a senior, and the children writing them as to what's going on in their world, and the things they're interested in, and what have you. I think all of this is terrific. Exactly. And, and, you know, in a time when, like, oftentimes we hear, like, bleak and negative things, like, what a great way to be refueled by positive things going on, you know, that are going on around us in our world. How many people you got involved? Um, currently, right now, uh, as we're fast-forwarding to September 22, we are now providing, we have over 130 members in our group, and we are providing on average 140 to 180 cards per month for seniors. Fantastic. So how often does any of your members write a card, or what exactly goes on? Um, basically, um, our volunteers and Mike Carroll, who started the group, uh, deliver cards at the end of every month for the following month. Okay. So, again, uh, it could be any, like, whether they're flowers or different types of themes, something that seniors can relate to, and an uplifting message. So it could be something like, I wish for all your wishes to come true, or wishing you a day that's as wonderful as you are, something like that, something uplifting, something positive. Um, Patty, I actually started my own family group during the pandemic for Caring Cards. Mm -hmm. So um, myself and my mom and my mother-in-law, my sister, my son, who's nine, uh, we all began this monthly group at my own home, and what a great way for us to spend quality family time together while at the same time giving back to our seniors. So it's just been fantastic. Um, if I could share with you some other things that we're doing currently right now, um, not only are we distributing um, birthday cards and treats, um, Caring Cards is also providing um, prizes for activity events that go on in the seniors' homes. Okay. So we have five events now within so far in September, October that we've been providing prizes for. So that's another uh, key component as to what it is that we're doing. What's an example of a treat? Like, are we talking about like a pack of purity kisses or what kind of treats are people sending along? The feedback that we've received um, from a lot of the staff has been anything from like word, uh, crossword puzzles, word search puzzles, you know, notebooks, something they can write down some information in, calendars, uh, gum, just coloring books and markers and crayons, even um, uh, even knitting yarn has been something, or even soft boxes of soft tissues, hard candy, even fruit hard candy, uh, fidget toys has also been something else that's mentioned. So any of those types of things seniors can use, or l little chocolate treats, Anything of that nature. Whatever, yeah. So where do people find your group? Uh, they can find our group. Uh, we have a Facebook page called Caring Hearts for Seniors. 
So on that page, we post a lot of uplifting uh, quotes, messages, who's been donating to us, what types of items. We take pictures, just acknowledging our volunteers, acknowledging our donors, um, acknowledging the staff. And I think that's a big key component, Patty, as well. Every February is our annual event where we, on Valentine's Day, we acknowledge the staff that have, you know, provided so much care for our seniors. So I think that's a big piece of it, too, recognizing the staff, recognizing the volunteers. And, you know, the messages that we've received, just, you know, we see value in what you do, how can we help, what can we donate, has just been phenomenal so far. So we're hoping now, October 1st is National Seniors Day, and we are hoping, relying on the generosity of the public, to really get this out there, provide donations, provide cards. And I also think, Patty, with regards to children, children have been a big piece of, like, this as well. Um, like, children have been, been involved in donating cards. So I think what a great way to get children involved, you know, what values it instills, uh, teaching them and empowering them about the joy of giving and building character and really, like, bringing a smile to a senior's face and how they can impact, you know, by, by making a huge difference by, you know, just, I think it sounds very rewarding, not only for the senior, but for the card writer and the treat provider. Thanks for telling us about it, Christy. Thank you so much. And one last thing I'd like to say, again, acknowledge Mike Harrell for the opportunity to be part of this group. Acknowledge all of our donors and all the kind words and support we've received and all the volunteers for their hard work and kindness and their positive energy and the staff who help the seniors on on a daily basis. Sounds good to me. Keep up the good work. Stay in touch. Okay. Thank you so much, Patty. You're welcome, Christy. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. I mean, I love that. It's so simple, too, right? You know, you can imagine, whether it be people, uh, seniors or residents of long-term care homes or personal care homes or what have you, who maybe don't have family and friends around and get the visitors like they see some of their fellow seniors getting, or even if they do have a ton of family around. Getting something like that personalized in the mail, tangible, you can hold on to it and read it and eat the purity kisses or whatever the case may be. I think it sounds pretty great. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. When we come back, David's there to talk about wait times to see a specialist. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, David. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Doing fine. Thanks. How about you? I could be a little better, I guess, by uh, all things considered. I don't consider myself too terribly bad, but I wanted to... First of all, I want to make a comment, if uh, if I can, on your previous caller. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a that's a great idea. She uh, she got going. Uh, that's an idea that uh, they got going. But I wish I could make a suggestion to her. Go ahead. You know. And I hope she's listening. But uh, go ahead. Why would why would they stop at at seniors? What about the other people that are that uh, aren't able to to uh, get out around and probably don't have many people around, like uh, disabled people and and things like that. People like that, you know, they love to see they love to see something like that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know why they 
keep it or well, limit it to seniors. Maybe, so. maybe it's coming. Maybe it's coming later. We don't know, but I just wanted to make that suggestion, Patty. Sure. These are just private citizens that are trying to do something kind for someone else. I think probably the origin of this was when I know there's plenty of shut-ins. That's absolutely true. But when you mm. know that you've got X number of residents at, for instance, Pleasant View Towers, and you know they're oh, all no. there, it's easy enough to just try to make that connection as opposed to yeah. try to figure out who may be shut-ins. I guess you could go through the yeah. coalitions of persons with disabilities or what have you. So that's a fair suggestion. And I don't know what anyone yeah. might do in the future on that. I I hope they I hope they continue that uh, that project and I hope it succeeds. I wish them all the best. Um, you know, no, uh, getting to what I wanted to talk about this morning, um, I'm a little bit hurt, disappointed, and a little bit upset, if if you will. Um, okay, what are we talking about? Let's go. We're talking about uh, health care and mainly the wait time deals. I've been through the eMERGE three times. I got a bad shoulder. I'm in a wheelchair. I'm in a, a manual wheelchair. I only get six hours of home care a day, three in the morning and three in the evening which is totally not enough, never was, never will. But that's all I get. That's all they tell me that, that, I, that I'm allowed to have. I went to the emergency three times, I think it was, with a bad shoulder. Now my shoulder, within the past month or two, month for sure, my shoulder is deteriorating quicker than the quicker than you can think. My shoulder is going downhill real fast. Uh, at the end of the day, when it's time for me to give in for the night, uh, I actually can't wait to try and get some sleep. My shoulder is, is bugging me that much. Uh, and when my home care workers are not around, I can't, you know, I got I got to fend for myself. I got to push the chair myself. I got to do everything myself when my home care workers are not around. God love them when, when they're around, they help. Uh, they help a lot. Sure they do. Have you tried to go through? Go ahead. Uh, go ahead. I was going to ask you if uh, the manual wheelchair is becoming unmanageable for you based on your shoulder or any other factor. Have you tried to get a motorized wheelchair? I have, and I'm. I can. I can just imagine your reaction when I tell you what you said. They, I, I put in for a motorized wheelchair when I got this one. And the powers that be came back and said, you're too blind to use a, a motorized wheelchair. That was their response. 
Yikes. Um, not so sure about no, to say to that. No, I went to, I finally got in to see a doctor when I was way too late. Now they're sending me for physio. And first they were saying, yeah, it's only going to be six weeks, or it could be six weeks, could be longer for you to get in and get something done. Now they're saying, nope, we're still trying to get the June patients in. So we don't know when we're going to get you in. You know, this is unacceptable. I mean, this is 2022. Why are why do we have to wait so long? Why why are people like me that are in manual chairs that need a motorized chair can't even get one because the powers that be says no, you're too blind. You can't get it. You can't use it. Well, if I can't use if I can't use a motorized chair, Patty, what? And excuse the language, Patty. Well, don't curse. What the hell am I doing in a manual? I mean, I don't know. It's hard for me to speak to it because I don't know the parameters around motorized wheelchairs and the liability or the risk with someone who's got compromised eyesight. I just don't really know what to say to that. But the issue with waiting. It's not so much much of, of a risk as it is in, in a manual because you, there's there's ways that you can slow that motorized chair down slower than what a, a manual can go. Fair enough. I, I wish you uh, nothing but the best, and hopefully you get to see who you need to see as soon as possible. We're, so many of us are in the queue waiting to see doctors. Many people out there wishing they even had a doctor that they could go see. David, do you take good oh, care of yourself. Thanks for this this morning. You do. Okay. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep going here. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the CEO at Easter Seals. That's Mark Bradbury. Mark, here on the air. Mark Bradbury on line number three. Davis is pot up by chance. Mark, are you there? Uh, I'm just going to put him on hold. Uh, we'll put Mark on hold. So I, I'm not sure what Mark is calling about this morning, but there was some funding. There was an issue regarding summer job funding uh, that was cut. That was federal government funding that was going to Easter Seals, Newfoundland, Labrador. We'll try to see what the real-life impact was there. I think it probably caused some of the other projects, like the big park project that they're working on, maybe been stalled a little bit. So many groups have been you know, seeing some of the funding they get, whether it be from the province or the feds, cut. And, you know, there's a lot of people who are requiring so much of the programs and services provided by groups like Easter Seals that we wonder how they cope. Is he back there now? Okay, let's try again. Line number three, Mark Bradbury, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Thank you for having me. Happy to do it. So let's start with what I was just talking about. I remember at the beginning of the summer, there was a story regarding federal government funding that was cut flowing towards Easter Seals and to compromise maybe some summer jobs or put some park projects on hold. What was the real life implications? Oh, they were uh, they were pretty large. I mean, uh, we offer uh, a uh, summer camp to uh, not just uh, children with physical disabilities, but uh, all disabilities and all ages, and uh, it's it's a big impact. The um, counselors that we hire are all post-secondary students that we require in order to help people uh, with disabilities. So they're nursing students, sociology students, um, and uh, kinetics, and so on. And it's really, really important that we have them. So uh, we took a cut there, and um, 
I made some noise, and uh, we got uh, some people on the line. And thankfully, uh, they uh, revisited things and saw the uh, the need for us, and they uh, reinstated the funding. So uh, we thank uh, our local MPs for doing that. Oh, great. I didn't know it had been restored, so that's the good news. I'm glad I asked. So yeah. I'm not sure what you called about, Mark. What's on your mind this morning? Well, speaking of Easter Seals, uh, today is the last day, Patty. Um, I just want to let all your listeners know uh, that today is the last day to get in on the Easter Seals Luxury Cabin Lottery. It's midnight tonight, so it's I've been saying all along, get your tickets today at cabinlottery.ca, but it's get your tickets now or else you're not going to be in for it. So, um, as you know, it's a beautiful uh, cabin. You can go on uh, cabinlottery.ca. And take a look at the videos, but it's basically a luxury, beautiful cabin out at Dildo Palm Properties, just an hour outside of St. John's, very near the brewery. It's on a waterfront lot. It has open modern kitchen and high vaulted ceilings, propane fireplace, uh, tank fill up by North Atlantic, just breathtaking views of the pond. You know, a garage downstairs, fully furnished by Collins, completely landscaped, ready to go. Bring up your friends and family, have a barbecue, and turn of the key. But you can't get in unless you get in there right now and get your tickets. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other prizes, uh, uh, $100, $100 gift cards from Outdoor Pros, Trip for Two from Universal Travel, m- amongst other gift cards from them. Uh, the 50-50, Patty, my goodness, uh, we all love that 50-50 in Newfoundland and Labrador. And last year's record was a breaking $651,000. And uh, I can let listeners know right now that we are already at around 600000 And we will sell uh, – we have sold out – on the last day, I would suspect that we'll be close to that record-breaking uh, number or even uh, even biggest. Um, the lottery impact, as you mentioned, how important it is up there to Easter Seals. Uh, we offer over 20 programs and services to people with disabilities in the province. Recreation, art, music, overnight camps, day camp, career services. The list goes on. And so just making a huge impact for families with disabilities in the province. And then we're also building our capital campaign for the uh, fully accessible and inclusive park and playground. We're two-thirds of the way through. Uh, we want to hammer down with the last third, and this lottery is going to really help. And it's the best deal in town. It's $30 a ticket, change, life-changing, uh, for just $30 at cabinlottery.ca. Or you can call one 9515 I got my tickets. Uh, it's a beautiful cabin. Uh, take it from me. I've had a look at the pictures. It is something worth buying a ticket on. You can't win if you don't play. I uh, appreciate the time. Good luck with it, Mark. Thank you so much, Patty. Really appreciate VOCM for the sponsorship and all of the uh, effort that your team put towards uh, this uh, life-changing uh, lottery for uh, for everyone. Sounds great. Good luck. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. You too, Mark. Bye. It's Mark Bradbury. He's the CEO at Easter Seals. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll be speaking with you. I can feel it. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Waterford Valley. He's the Minister of Health and Community Services, Tom Osborne. Minister Osborne, you're on the air. Uh, Thanks for uh, the opportunity, Patty. I appreciate uh, the time you're uh, providing me this morning. I just wanted to, I know you probably got a a dozen questions as well, but... Mm -hmm. Before we get into that, wanted to give some update. Um, I know that uh, the closure of emergency departments has been a huge issue uh, over the summer months. We are making tremendous progress, uh, and it's uh, a combination of uh, recruitment efforts as well as scheduling 
um, you know, uh, management of scheduling, and I want to, first of all, um, you know, throw a bouquet, uh, commend our health authorities. They've been working closely with the department. They've been doing uh, a tremendous job of finding uh, solutions, and we've seen reductions in uh, the, the closures within emergency departments um, you know, and, and I can give you a couple of examples. Yes, please. You know, not a noticeable difference in Lab Grenfell. Uh, we are still working on that. But if you look at Bonavista as an example, uh, we had, uh, you know, in July there was a, a large number of uh, um, days and hours in which the emergency department was closed. We've reduced that um, in August. Uh, significantly and uh, been very few days in fact that we've seen a, a closure in, in August uh, I believe we're down close to no days in fact in Bonavista if you look at uh, Bond Bay uh, we had 262 hours of closures in in um, August uh, was in September in Bonavista we're down to zero actually so we had uh, uh, we were down to 60 hours in August and, and now down to zero hours of closure in September. Uh, Bond Bay in August, we had 262 hours of closure, uh, down to 72. Uh, you look at uh, Bay Vert, we had 360 hours of closure in September, uh, down to 72. We had 40 hours of virtual care in, in uh, August. In September, we're down to zero. You look at Green Bay as an example, we had 214 hours of diversion in uh, August, down to 46 in September, um, down to zero hours of virtual care, where we had 46 hours of virtual care in, uh, in um, August. So, you know, we're making great strides. Uh, we've been very focused on recruitment of uh, healthcare professionals. I know we had our recruitment team uh, in Ontario last week. Uh, the Premier was in the UK, in Ireland uh, um, this week. Um, I know we've got our team of recruiters going to Ireland to follow up that visit. Um, and uh, we've got, um, you know, a, a more significant, which, you know, the, the details are still being worked on, so we will provide greater detail in the coming days. But I know uh, the Department of IPGS, the Department of Health, the four health authorities, are working on a very focused and, um, uh, you know, a, a very well-planned, methodical uh, recruitment effort internationally, uh, which we will get into for our registered nurses. Okay. Uh, just let me ask you a, a question about uh, newcomers, international trained and accredited healthcare professionals. I mean, we know that that's a problem. You know, it's one thing to th for them to want to come, another thing for them to be able to practice because we have all these accreditation issues, whether it be province to province or country to country. So how does it work if we attract an Irish-trained doctor? Does that mean that person can land here, go right to the clinic or right to the hospital and begin to work, or what's going to be the holdup? So we've been working, and you may have seen the news release uh, just last week, uh, for a joint news release from the Department of Health and the College of Physicians and Surgeons, we also had one a joint release from the uh, department and the College of Registered Nurses. We've been working very collaboratively uh, with both of those colleges, with the NLMA um, and other stakeholders on recruitment and retention efforts. 
uh, we've been very focused on that. So some of the, you know, we need the, the bar. Obviously, patient safety is, is paramount. You need to ensure that the healthcare professional is ready and capable of working in the province. Uh, and, you know, there, there's a Canadian bar that must be met as well. But uh, in terms of both colleges, we've been looking at uh, uh, reducing the barriers to uh, practicing here. Uh, we've got new licensures uh, that uh, we've approved uh, within government for uh, physicians. Uh, we're working with the uh, College of Registered Nurses on uh, you know, licensure there and scope of practice and reducing the barriers. So there's a number of things that we're working on to make it easier to ease the path for international uh, medical graduates. Because, surely, if I'm a graduate of Trinity College in Dublin, I'm well-versed in medicine and should be able to practice wherever. So some of these barriers, I know there's some federal guidance required here, but a lot of the, the authority does rest with the college and the licensing board in this province. Okay, that's one thing. And you mentioned virtual care a few times. We're told that that's going to be a big part of the future, right? If you don't need to see if a doctor face-to-face or a nurse practitioner or whatever the case may be, virtual care is the deal, which brings me back to the saga of Dr. Paul Hart. Now, I know the department was willing to get involved here and pay the fee for an application. So for people who don't know, Paul Hart was the uh, graduate of Mons Medical School. Never did practice in this country, I'm led to believe, but he moved to Massachusetts, practiced for almost 50 years. He said he would come to the province for free, pay his own way, not get compensated, pay his own uh, living expenses, and the whole bit. The college said that he didn't qualify because he hadn't worked uh, 120 days prior to the application, but he has been practicing virtual care. So do you have any authority at the college, or what can we anticipate here? Because they can't have it both ways. If virtual care is going to be part of the f future, then they have to include it as actually practicing as a medical professional. Yes, yeah, so as you know, I mean, you know, a couple of points on that. We have uh, put out an RFP for virtual care, and that is to provide care where somebody doesn't have an attachment to a family physician. Uh, it's also to ensure that our um, rural hospitals, for example, our Category Bs, have um, physician oversight whenever there may be a shortage or a scheduling challenge. Um, you know, to help uh, avoid or eliminate the diversions that are happening at some of the sites. So you're correct in, in the fact that, you know, some of those barriers have been worked on and have been looked at. Um, I can't get into any particular uh, case or any particular individual, um, but I do know, you know, we did have discussions with the college and, um, you know, that the, the college had... Um, reasons that we understand um, and you know that that's as much as I can uh, say um, in in that particular case but you know I, I know we we had uh, discussions with the college and um, uh, there were some concerns and and uh, uh, we would have liked to have seen a physician especially you know if a physician is willing to come in and work for free uh, but Sometimes uh, the the obstacles you're not able to get around. And again, you know, a 50-year veteran practicing in Boston, it's not like we're talking some unknown uh, commodity. You know, we're talking North American doctors here. Okay, so that's fine. There's a few I really need to get to. Paramedics get left out of the conversation far too often here. Critical first responders and the role that they play in the healthcare system. We're losing paramedics. So the question on a paramedic this morning asked me to pose on his behalf is, where are we in what was told years ago 
to be the new landscape of paramedic, paramedic medicine. So is it going to be one, like multinational takes over the whole kit and caboodle? Will they all be working for the government? Will they all be working in the private sector? Because now we have a disparity in the rate of pay. We've got the burnout that is real. All of the issues with offloading patients, all of these things lead to the fact that we're losing paramedics. So can you give us an update of where we are in the transition in the paramedics world? And, you know, that's a, a very important topic because you're, you're absolutely right, Patty. They are first responders. Uh, we actually had a very in-depth uh, meeting just yesterday around this uh, topic. Um, as you know, the Health Accord is calling for... Um, you know, a consolidated road and air ambulance service uh, with a central dispatch. You know, so the plans are, are being looked at and um, are being um, finalized on, on how exactly that looks. Um, but a centralized dispatch doesn't address the numbers of paramedics who are burnt out and or are leaving. So are we going to see, for instance, the government God put out an RFP, you know, go to the market to see if there's a company, for instance, there's, and there's ambulance companies in this uh, in this continent. Are we going to see a privatization of it in full? Because it's one thing to bring air and ground ambulance services into the one dispatch center, but that doesn't really deal with the paramedic issue. So what can you tell us on that front? No, and, and that is a, a large part of the equation. You know, the recruitment and retention of first responders is also important. Many of the first responders that are currently operating in the province are, uh, are public servants, many of them are not. So, you know, those are some of the items that need to be worked on. I think once we, you know, we get through the process, and it's it's premature to, um, to say publicly until we get, you know, approval for what we need to do ourselves within the, the internal system. Um, but, you know, I do know that, the, you know, working with Dr. Parfrey, um, who is the Deputy Minister responsible for the implementation of the Health Accord uh, and discussions that uh, have taken place, that plans are well underway uh, to address the issue of what the uh, road and air ambulance look like. Recruitment and retention is an issue. Um, remuneration uh, is certainly um, an issue where there are different levels of pay for the different levels of paramedics that are currently there. Um, you know, so it is complex when you're looking at bringing some unionized, some non-unionized, some private, some community, and some public uh, service um, operators all together under one um, umbrella and what that looks like. Um, you know, so when you know, because of the complexity of that, there's been a great deal of work done on it already. Uh, there's still some work to be done, uh, but you're absolutely correct that uh, re re retention and recruitment of uh, first responders uh, is certainly an issue uh, that is just as important as registered nurses or nurse practitioners or physicians. And uh, it's, it's uh, part of those discussions that we're having. Let's talk about scope of practice. For me, you know, as a lay person, it seems like that's one surefire area where we can ease the burden on clinics and hospitals and the system as a whole. 
I saw last week or the week before you're looking at expanding the scope of practice for pharmacists, for instance. Are you being lobbied by different groups, whether it be the NLMA or, or what have you, to just restrict some of these scope of practice uh, to be maximized? So at, if not, what's the holdup? Is it a legislative issue? Is there more understanding that needs to be garnered or gained? So fundamentally, what's the holdup in expanding scope of practice for whoever, LPNs, NPs, registered nurses, pharmacists, whoever? Um, you know, so to be fair, I, rec I met with the Pharmacy Association literally about a month ago. Um, they raised this issue with me. Uh, I did give a commitment to moving it forward um, and ensuring that we look at the scope of practice. And it does fall within the, the mandate of the Health Accord as well, increasing the scope of practice, um, you know, to full potential of all of our health disciplines. You know, so when they, uh, when I met with the association, gave the commitment that we are looking at it, we've been moving very swiftly within the department on, um, you know, what that looks like. Uh, and, I mean, you can't go from zero to 60, um, you know, in terms of, you know, sweeping changes. So I think that, you know, we, we have to make... Um, be very methodical in how we move forward, um, and and that's what we're doing. But I can assure you um, that uh, you know when you're looking at things like urinary tract infection or uh, or you know some medi medications, uh, yeah, renewing prescriptions and the like, things that are fairly fundamental. Minister Osborne, I hate to interrupt, but is it possible that I could put you on hold? David needs me to get to a break, but I have a few more important questions. Absolutely. Okay, so let's do exactly that. We'll put the minister on hold. We'll take a break and come back. Speak one more time with the Minister of Health and Community Services, Tom Osborne. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's rejoin Minister Osborne on line two. Minister, you're back on the air. Pleasure to be back. Terrific. And let's get through a few more before I get forced off to the news. You mentioned the health accord many times. Where are we? Because I know it's a long transition over a 10-year plan. But what proactive measures, what, what recommendations have been acted upon at this moment? So where are we with the health accord? So it is a 10-year plan, but that doesn't mean that everything has to wait 10 years to be implemented. Uh, things are being implemented uh, over the course of 10 years, including this year. Uh, you look at the uh, uh, collaborative uh, clinics. Um, you know, we've started, there, there are... Uh, the pilot uh, collaborative care clinics um, in St. John's Central and Western Region. Uh, we are in the process of expanding the number of uh, collaborative care clinics throughout the province now based on the pilot uh, and, you know, what modifications may have had to have been made based on, on the pilot and learning from that. So those uh, care clinics will be expanded throughout the province. That's one example. Okay, on that front, Will there be any expansion without newcomers to the system? Because it's one thing to open up a collaborative care clinic, but I know one of them just saw a family practice uh, doctor move from Mount Pearl, unable to take her patient roster with her. So we just moved doctors around. Will we not open clinics unless we have full new staff to staff them as opposed to just shuffling around healthcare professionals? Well, you know, we, we can't just simply move shelves around. Uh, in, when you look at the, the collaborative care clinics, uh, they are able to look after a larger number of patients because you have a team of healthcare professionals. So we have to keep that in mind. And you know, while you may have a family physician leave a practice to go to a clinic, uh, they're surrounded by a team of healthcare professionals. Um, you know, so the patient then no longer be belongs just to a family uh, physician; they belong to the team. 
if one of those team members leave, the, the patient is not left without service. So it is, it is a good model. It's a good practice. Um, you know, there, there may be, in some cases, a family physician leave a practice to go to a team, but you're absolutely correct. We do need to recruit people in order to, across the board, in, in all disciplines of healthcare, and we've been focused on that. Um, and, you know, that is part of the path forward with the collaborative care clinics as well. The message coming from Eastern Health regarding mercy rooms at St. Clair's and health, the Health Sciences Centre kind of sent a bit of ripples of panic through the general public. If you don't have an urgent emergency, please do not come. Then we read stories about single overcapacity, double overcapacity, patients who are being admitted but don't have a bed. They're on a gurney in a hallway or a storage closet. Then some moves that were announced, but I'm not sure that they've been made. For instance, orthopedic day surgery, hip and knee replacements. If you're able to go home that day, you go home that day. My understanding that has not been fully implemented, or has it? it that's in the process in terms of, of the uh, uh, joint replacement. That is in the process, and we are looking at expansion. We're looking at Carbonier, for example, uh, with that as well. You know, So we are moving forward with that. Um, that will uh, provide... For, for those patients who are able to have the surgery and then recover at home, uh, some patients can't, uh, but for those who can, um, you know, so that, that process is in place. Uh, it will provide uh, quicker uh, access to those services. Uh, because of that, it will provide the access to the, the beds, um, you know, for patients that are, are able to take advantage of that. Uh, when you look at the announcement by... Uh, Eastern Health. Um, you know, I know that, that that did raise some concerns, but, you know, it's an important message as well. If you have an emergency, if you think you have an emergency, go to the emergency room. If it is not an emergency, uh, call 811. 80% of the people who call 811 are able to be resolved by a nurse or a nurse practitioner. Um, on 811 without needing to be referred to an emergency department. They will be able to tell you uh, through their assessment. People don't need to self-assess, but many people know if you have a splinter, it's not an emergency. You may be able to, you know, do something else, you know, and not to minimize it, but that's an example. So, you know, emergency rooms um, can have quicker flow, better care, um, and, and faster treatment for those who are going to the emergency room if the people attending are attending for emergencies. Um, there are options, and that's all Eastern Health was saying, that mm -hmm. if, if you think that it may not be an emergency, call 811. Uh, they will tell you whether or not it is, and they may be able to provide the services you need. We have other modes of service available. Uh, in terms of 811, I know we've got uh, the nurse practitioner uh, allotment at 811. We're looking to expand that to increase uh, the speed at which somebody is able to get a consult with a nurse practitioner who can oftentimes provide the, uh, you know, the services. There are services when you look at scope of practice uh, that you absolutely need a physician for, but there are services that a nurse practitioner can provide uh, that can't be provided by an RN, um, and 
they can ease the burden on on the uh, overcapacity on physicians as well. So we are increasing the capacity of nurse practitioners on 811. Because people are having problems, you know, not getting called back in a timely fashion or what have you. So we can indeed direct people to 811, but 811 has to be efficient for folks who have been redirected to that service. Uh, what's the ministerial message to the health authorities? We know they're all merging into one entity, but we're not that far removed from the Cameron Inquiry and the hormone receptor fiasco, and now we have these mammography test results and not having the standard uh, being met with the 3 megapixels, the 5 megapixels. Yet, there's an annual audit, and this was not flagged. This has caused great consternation amongst people who have indeed had a mammography test, and maybe, just maybe, there's a discrepancy in their test result. What's the minister's message to these entities? Because this just cannot happen. No, so... You know, I, I commend Central Health as soon as they found out that this was an issue. Um, you know, they found out on on a Wednesday. Uh, I forget the exact date, but it was in uh, it was uh, in August. Um, and later that day, once they had an opportunity to look and and determine whether or not it was an issue, on the same day they informed the department. I was informed. I believe it was late afternoon on that same day. We immediately instructed uh, Central Health to carry out uh, a review and to provide a public update. Uh, So they came back on Friday uh, of that same week and said, yes, there is a concern. It looked like on Wednesday it might be uh, one or two people, but it looks larger. So on Friday they, they informed us it looked larger. We inform, you know, we we requested that they uh, inform the public on Monday, and uh, you know, uh, by Wednesday of that week, they were able to review some of those images. Uh, we do know, uh, based on that, we'd ask the other health authorities uh, to also review and to inform the public that they were going to be doing that review. We understand from Central Health. Uh, that of the 3,500 images that were read on 3 megapixel versus the 5 megapixel, uh, there were nine images uh, where they said, we'd like you to come in so that we can further assess. The latest count that I got on that is two of those nine people had been in for um, uh, the additional review and there were no concerns. Uh, and that's the good news, and it's good that they reacted swiftly when they identified the problem. The problem, I guess, prior to that is it wasn't identified for years as it was ongoing. These are national standards that we need to be in line with because if we have to you know, ensure that healthcare professionals have the accreditation and the training and the language skills to, uh, to practice here, then certainly we've got to be hitting national standards. Uh, just, I've got two more very quick ones. The CEO of Central Health, Ms. Robichaud, is she still living in New Brunswick? And if so, do you have a problem with a CEO of a regional health authority not being right here in this province? What I can say, and and I do believe she is in New Brunswick, what I can say is I speak with uh, CEO Robichaud on a weekly basis. Um, You know, I am not aware of any um, instance where the... Uh, health authority has not been served to its full potential by Ms. Robichaud. Um, she, for example, is the individual that informed our department the same day that she found out, and she uh, conducted a review uh, and thoroughly, quickly, um, very impressed with how she handled that review. 
so, you know, to the best of my knowledge, um, she is doing the job that she has been hired to do. Well, shouldn't a person in that role, such an important, critically important role, should that person not be here in the province? Ideally, uh, that would be the case. I know that, uh, you know, uh, you know what the employment conditions were uh, when she was hired, or you know what the, what the standards were set. I'm not I'm not sure, uh, but like I said, I can assure you that she is conducting her job as she should. Last one. We very seldom get to speak with senior bureaucrats, but the toughest job in the province is now being handled by Dr. Megan Hayes, the deputy minister responsible for recruitment and retention. Like I say, we never get to speak with the deputy ministers, or not. Generally speaking, we don't. Do you think you'd be able to help us organize some time with her? Because to understand the creative methods to recruit and retain, because there's a different package required in different parts of the province, do you think that would be a possibility? Um, I won't speak for Dr. Hayes. Uh, she may or may not um, you know, want to have that public persona or speak to the media. Okay. You know, so I, I won't speak for her, but I can assure you, um, you know, whether she wants to speak to the media or not, I am available to the media uh, at request, as you know, um, and uh, more than happy to speak to these issues. Sure. I'll put in a, 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 a personal request, or the show will put in a request for, for some of her time. Put, put in a good word for us. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Thank you, Minister. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Tom Osborne, Minister of Health and Community Services. Time for the news. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Jeff, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Hello. Listen, I love the show, and uh, I always find that uh, I agree with your viewpoints, and I'm always impressed by your vast knowledge of such a wide variety of subjects and topics. Appreciate it. Um, I thought maybe I would uh, talk about the uh, CBC article regarding the uh, hearing-impaired man who was a student at MUN. Yeah, uh, William Sears. Yeah. Yeah, William Sears. There's so many layers to the story, I thought it would be a nice conversation to have with you to get your viewpoint on a few um, points. Where do we start? uh, Just as as a quick summary. So uh, the guy was at MUN. He was taking some courses. Um, he was mostly given accommodation, or he was given accommodation, until he ran into a professor, Punjabi. And uh, when he requested accommodation for his hearing impairment, which consisted of the professor having to wear a device uh, around her neck so uh, she could speak directly into a uh, hearing apparatus that he would wear. Yeah, it's an uh, FM transmitting refused. microphone. That's right. There you go. Uh, she refused, and... Uh, she refused on the basis of for religious reasons, and um, the reasons she gave, which are outlined in the article uh, that you mentioned in your preamble, uh, they seem to be pretty thin and hollow. Uh, would you agree? Well, when it's couched in that she practices a certain form of mysticism, I mean, for an interruption of her personal experience and personal individualized search for the truth, what kind of gibberish is that? 
I mean, their job is really quite clear, is to teach the students. And if a student needs an accommodation, I mean, because we're not you know, talking about upsetting her chakra. We're talking about the guy's need for her to wear an FM transmitting microphone so he can hear what she's saying. That's her job. I just can't believe it even happened. And then she got a letter saying that she didn't have to do it. Uh, of course, the Human Rights Commission disagrees. There's been a $10,000 award given to Mr. Sears, but that's seven years after the fact, after he was humiliated and dropped the course. It just doesn't jibe with me. Agree. And uh, just to go back to the for the religious reason uh, she provided, um, what I would say is that the more likely reason is, is she just couldn't be bothered in wearing the device around her neck. That's more what it sounds like. Sure. But uh, if we take it at face value, and it was religious reasons, uh, the tribunal was very clear, and uh, they deliberated, and they awarded uh, uh, William Sears 10000 bucks. So... I remember back when the story was um, first published, uh, they did a spot piece, uh, CBC did, and they uh, interviewed Jerome Kennedy, the lawyer and former politician. And he was actually dead on, and he nailed it right then and there. He, uh, he basically summarized the whole human rights uh, issue at that time. And seven years later, it's official. But what's disappointing is that in the article, Munn, uh, spokesperson Dave Sorensen says that uh, they're going to appeal the decision. And I think that's a very bad move by the university. Well, I guess it will set a legal precedent if indeed they're successful in their appeal. I'm just concerned in the broad strokes of it all is that we talk about accommodations in the K-12 system, but the conversation doesn't stop there. It has to extend itself to post-secondary. You know, if we're going to... I don't know if the right word is cower or succumb or to just roll over if someone has this type of position. I mean, we're not talking about an imposition that would be devastating to her spirituality. We're talking about accommodation so a person who's paid their tuition can learn. So I just don't really think that this is a very wise move by Memorial University, to be honest, because they're basically saying that if a tenured professor simply does not want to do one thing or another to accommodate a student, then it's okay, when in fact it's not okay. I agree 100%. And this leads to a larger question regarding religious accommodation. And this is one that becomes tricky because you don't want to have a religious bias. But when is religious accommodation appropriate and inappropriate? And what side of that argument do you find yourself on? There's many cases in the past, and I'll just bring one up that goes back to 2014, when a group of uh, religious Hindus came to the country, and they were accommodated by um, Customs Canada. They, it was a, it was, um, it was, they were given a religious accommodation to be processed by male customs agents because it would, be, um, in, it would be against the religion to be processed by female customs agents. And at that time, I thought the same thing. I thought, okay, so here are, um, here are these uh, a religious group coming to Canada where we have uh, equality, and uh, if you've ever gone through customs before, you line up in the queue, and the next available agent, that's who you see. And at that time, I thought that they should have been, um, they should have been directed towards the next available agent, because in Canada, um, we make no distinction. We have equality between sexes. And so I thought that was a mistake, and it, it was an overstep of religious accommodations. Well, okay. 
But in this case, or in that case, pardon me, the process was adhered to. So I think it's a little bit of a different conversation because if the process has been attended to and the people were processed like they should be at customs, regardless if it was an accommodation for a man to do it versus a woman, it happened. As opposed to this case where the religious accommodation meant that someone was not given any attention, in this case, Mr. Sears. So I get the point you're making, but I think there's slightly different conversations because if the process worked, regardless of the accommodation made, versus what happened at Memorial University where the accommodation was not made on religious grounds. So uh, I get the point you're making, but I think the outcome is, it's the polar opposite outcome, which is what we have to avoid. You know, some things can and should be done to accommodate folks as long as it's not too intrusive on the system, doesn't delay the process, doesn't upend the process. But I, I think I get your point. Okay, here's one more example. Sure, go ahead. There are, there are times, and I can't think of the exact story now, where people um, refuse medical treatment on the grounds of uh, religion. And sometimes they can go so far as to refuse medical treatment for their dependence on grounds of uh, religious beliefs. And that's another example of accommodations going too far. So, you know, if you look at if you look a little deeper into religious beliefs, it doesn't take long to see how um, varied they are. And and really, Patty, if we're being honest, how ridiculous they become. And then. It's almost expected as if the rest, uh, as if society is a tiptoe around ridiculous beliefs and again and again, extreme religious beliefs, uh, they impose themselves on society. And there's so many examples, Roe versus Wade being overturned by religious extremists. And, um, and, and the list goes on and on where the impacts of extreme religious beliefs are, have serious ramifications to society as a whole. And, and this case here, I feel, exposes that. I appreciate the time this morning. Jeff, we're off to the break. Stay in touch. Thanks, bud. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's get that break in. When we come back, Dennis wants to talk about blood clots. All right, don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Dennis, you're on the air. Hello, Hi. Patty. Hi there. Good morning. morning. I want to talk about two options, uh, two opinions on the uh, the healthcare system, how uh, I got a history of blood clots, right? Okay. And uh, my medication, I had 40 days of uh, the blood thinners that I was on that um, I called last Friday, and I gave my MTB to the Transbones Clinic, the transposed thing. I got, I got, I got an accent that I can't pronounce, and um, I don't know how many other people are affected in the healthcare system with with problems. Said so I'm hearing this morning that other people does. Um, I'm just uh, concerned because I'm calling them. They called me back. I was kind of busy yesterday on the go, and uh, I, what my problem is, I'm supposed to have a blood test. And uh, and this machine, what's called, uh, it's uh, for blood clots, you know. I can't pronounce it. I'm supposed to have two tests on the blood test and, you know, and get this ultrasound thing on my leg. And I called Friday, and they said to get back to me, and then I waited Tuesday. And I called back 
you know, and I called back yesterday, the last couple of days, and they only called me once. Now, now I'm going to call back. He asks for your name, and the answer machine comes up. I'm wondering to know if anyone has a problem because my health is not up running. Uh, you know, it's not 100%. Well, I imagine the problem is uh, felt by many. I mean, we hear these types of stories quite frequently. What causes you to be prone to blood clots? Or maybe that's a dumb question. But do you, I'm, trying, do you... I'm trying to find out, right? I, I don't think that they know about the answer. that it is something causing my leg. I got, uh, um, I got a swollen leg, and it's Virgo uh, veins. Do you ever hear of that? Oh, yes, absolutely, yeah. I, I don't know the reason of this blood clot. That my first blood clot was at 17 years old, and I'm 39 years old now. Okay, before we run out of time, Dennis, and I hope you get the help you need there, there's also some mention on my subject line about crab. Did you have any? Yes. What about it? People came to me on the crab fishery, on the crab, and wanted to know they're sick of... Um, of snow uh, crab, and they're, they came to opinion of um, told me about it. I went today and can tell you guys to see what what could happen. People want king crab and um, and killer crab. I, I just want to put that out there to the people to see if you know what they want. I want their opinions on how that because. People will go for bigger crab and better crab. That's what they want in Newfoundland. That's all I wanted to put out there. Fair enough, because right now I think we only fish for snow crab, right? Yeah, people are, don't want that. They want killer crab and and king crab. Fair enough. Are there king crab in our waters? I don't know. That's the uh, question. The, the government has pulled to uh, make it happen. Well, they're either here or they're not, though, right? Yes, uh, people uh, will buy king crab. I just wanted to see how many opinions were out there. Okay, we'll see what people say and think about it, and they're always welcome to call. Yeah, it's a better product. That will sell more for for that crab fishery. Yeah, and I mean, I don't even know if there's king crab here to be caught. I, I doubt it, because if there was, you would think that they'd be going after it. In fact, I think we should be allowing people to go get the green crab, the invasive species that that is as well. Every crab out there that sells. That's how we're going to build up the, the fishery with the crab. I appreciate the time. I'll, I'll ask someone who knows more about it than me, whether or not there's a king crab, but I don't think there is in our waters. No, it's not in our waters. It is in other places. Yeah. Well, I know there's such a thing as a king crab, yeah. Uh, okay. After the news I go, appreciate the time. Take good care of yourself, okay. Dennis. thank you, buddy. All the best. Okay, bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, uh, it is time for the news. When we come back, there's a lady in the queue who would like to talk about shortages up at Labrador Grenfell. We'll hear from her, and they'll be speaking with you. Don't go away. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go line five. Lori, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, uh, I want to talk a bit about health care, but first off, I would uh, like to actually give a shout-out to the staff and the family and the other residents at Long-Term Care here in uh, Happy Valley Goose Bay. We recently lost uh, my husband Randy's um, grandmother at the age of 105 
her her service is actually taking place in Mikovic this afternoon. So, you know, she was she was one of the longest residents uh, to actually stay in long term care in here in Goose Bay. So, a big shout out to all of them for their years of care of um, who we call Big Grandma Muriel Anderson. I think we've talked about Muriel here on the show. Right. Oh, yes. probably so. Yes, um, uh, I, like Wally Anderson is her son, and uh, another lady called, one of her daughters called one day to talk about her. So, yeah, a fascinating okay. life, obviously. My husband, Randy Edmonds, that's his grandmother as well. Okay. Um, you know, you, you, t- you touched a bit on, on the One Provincial Health Board. Um, you know, a lot of conversations are happening about that. You know, whether that's good or bad, you know, I guess it remains to be seen, but Coming from a Labrador perspective, things cannot get any worse, so they can only get better. I mean, you gotta. I guess we gotta be optimistic about that, but it's certainly one hundred percent. It can't get any worse than what it is here in in Labrador right now. Um, you know, we have the uh, a lack of paramedics. We have another um, paramedic who is leaving and heading to uh, another province uh, within the next week or so. You know, a sad day to see that, of course. Um, you know, the wait times in lab grantful health, you know, in eMERGE, 14 and 15 hours waiting to see a doctor and getting sent home without seeing a doctor. People are literally waiting to die. And that's happened here. You know, it's not, you know, it's not rumor. It's not hearsay. You know, we, we've lost people because they've waited to see a doctor or they've waited to see a specialist. So, you know, it's it's devastating that this is still happening and it's still getting worse. I'm actually one of the mammogram patients myself who is still waiting for a callback for messages I left um, for a, another mammogram, but that's a whole other issue. You know, when you talk about um, the wait times, and, and that's, that's a direct uh, coalition with what's happening with recruitment and, and retention, and I listen to uh, Minister Osborne and uh, and I've listened to Jerry Earl earlier as well talk about it. Recruitment and retention is it's gone. It's it's down the drain. You know you've got so many people who are waiting to actually get appointments. They can't get appointments because there's no doctors. My son-in-law's sister um, is a, a doctor. You know, born and raised on the west coast of the island. Uh, you know, completed medical school, came back, tried to get a, a contract with the province, got nowhere with it. She's actually a doctor now in Vancouver because she got sick of waiting to get to, you know, for the Department of Health in our own province to get back to her and offer her a contract. So, you know, how do you how do you push recruitment and retention when you've got born and raised uh, residents of this province who are going through the process and can't get a contract with with the with the government. So, you know that's that's a, a problem that we're facing everywhere. I mean, there's a shortage of doctors, a shortage of nurses, a shortage of staff in general. So it's sad to see this young qualified doctor have to go to the other side of the country to get a job as a doctor in a hospital in Vancouver because she couldn't get one in this province. Yeah, and someone from this province who's trained to be a psychiatric nurse in Winnipeg is unable to come back and work where she wants to in her home province. So these stories are just adding up. Uh, absolutely. And it's getting worse. You know, it, it's like a nightmare that doesn't end. You know, we have, you know, I think the hospital here needs an independent patient navigator. I mean, I'm constantly, 
you know, I, I try to do with, you know, what I can for some of the family members who are dealing with some of these issues with lab grenfell health. And I, I sincerely think that an independent patient navigator needs to be put in place in uh, Labrador because we're dealing with, you know, we are dealing with a, a, a numerous different indigenous populations, but we're dealing with a situation where we have patients coming from the North Coast and the South Coast, all parts of Labrador, um, which, you know, travel in itself is, is horrible. But having having somebody who is independent, um, being able to help these patients, I, I think that's re- that, that's needed so bad. Um, and, and it's not something that's available here. So, you know, I, I don't understand whether that, that hasn't been something that's been put in place. And, you know, you've got, you know, you've, you've got the AGM for the Lab Grenfell Health Board. That's happening actually this weekend on a Sunday morning at 9 a.m. in Lansalou. And it's an in-person meeting. To me, you know, who's going to travel to Lansalou? Um to talk at an AGM or to voice concerns at an AGM um, when the influx of problems is happening in in the Lake Melville area, I find it very frustrating. And you know, we're not getting we're not getting any answers. We're not getting anything for for the people of Labrador. I think there are such things as patient navigators. Uh, I think inside of cancer care might be one area. Uh, but yeah, you're absolutely. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I actually, my, my my stepdaughter is one of the patient navigators under First Light in St. John's. Okay. And they do they do amazing work. They don't have that here. Right. It's a complicated system, and you know, if you add in the fact that people are worried and anxious and distracted because they're thinking about their own health, to try to navigate the system can be completely overwhelming for folks, and especially when you know you get up in years, and. It just becomes, you know, add in the fact you're not only unwell, is that the way we, things have changed with reliance on technology and stuff. And some people just don't have the capacity to navigate it properly or timely. So these things are important. That position, I agree with you 100%, Lori. I appreciate your and time. You also, look, okay. you also look at, I mean, I look at a lot of the seniors. I mean, the demographic of, of patients who, uh, who need the care, you know, you're talking about seniors especially, um, because when you get up in age, of course, you need more health care. You know, a lot of the seniors, they can't navigate a system that's online. They can't navigate a system that requires them to log on and, and file a, com- a, a formal complaint or, or, you know, make other arrangements. So having somebody um, that represents their needs, uh, because, you know, if, if, we're, if we're not looking after our seniors, we're not looking after anybody. Here, here. I appreciate your time, Lori. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Let's get to the break. When we come back, we're going to tell you about an upcoming town hall. And Jeff Meeker, who for a long time worked at the Newfoundland Herald, maybe as much as a decade when he left, he was the managing editor. Jeff's in the queue as well. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the NDP member for St. John's Centre. He's the interim leader of the NDP. That's Jim Din. Morning, Jim. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for having me on. Happy to do it. I just wanted to touch base with you uh, and uh, let your listeners know, especially those listeners who are in St. John's Centre. We're hosting the second of uh, two um, uh, town halls tonight at the Boys and Girls Club in St. John's at Buckmaster Circle. And uh, this is an initiative we wanted to to touch base 
it's been almost two years now since the, the last election, so it's a way of checking in with people. We get uh, we we get I get an awful lot of calls at the office, my constituency assistant and I. But it's uh, an opportunity for uh, more or less to make sure that we're hearing from uh, uh, people who may not have called the office, but still have an issue that or uh, uh, an issue that they think that I can address as MHA. Uh, that's fa- an issue that's facing that's important to St. John's Center, and that may be something that should be a priority of ours uh, heading into the next election. So what are the common themes? Because uh, I hear from as many people as I would imagine many politicians yes. do. So what are the, some of the common themes that you hear? Well, I know, I've spoken about a number of the, uh, the issues that come across my office in, 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 in you, uh, on the air with you a few times, but certainly we're hearing again uh, – we're hearing wait times. Uh, there's a real fear of, uh, with health in healthcare that uh, uh, affordability, housing in healthcare, housing occupies an awful lot of my time here. We had a number of students months post-secondary who are looking at the funding cuts and uh, they're concerned about education here. Sugar tax was one, but basically food security, uh, housing supports, an uh, investment in affordable housing, and making sure that those pe- people who are on fixed incomes and uh, uh, whatever whatever form that takes, uh, are able to look after themselves. Certainly uh, an aging demographic, the need for uh, effective long-term care, uh, but certainly uh, confirmed a lot of what I'm hearing in the phone, uh, at the phone, uh, with people calling into the office, and what I'm sure you're hearing as well. Yeah, no doubt. So give us the details one more time, Jim, about where, what people need to do if they'd like to attend, or if they can just show up. Sure thing. They can. Uh, so it's tonight at seven o'clock to uh, uh, nine p.m. at the Boys and Girls Club at St. John's, uh, and that's up at Buckmaster Circle. But they, everyone should have gotten something uh, in the mail or, or, or delivered to their door, and they can respond online if they're not comfortable uh, or can't make it to the night's event. And they can contact my office directly. The key thing here is to hear from people, and especially people who may not have called in, but they, you know, haven't contacted me. But you know what? There's something on their mind right now it's tough times or that's a burning issue and they think I need to hear it and that's what we're after. Appreciate the time uh, we'll have a follow up chat about what you hear and what you're doing about it. Perfect, take care Thanks, Thanks Jim, Benny. you're have welcome. Bye bye Jim Din, NDP member for St. John's Centre let's go to line number one. Good morning Jeff Meeker you're on the air. Hi Patty Hi How there. are you? I'm doing okay, how you doing? Great. Terrific so I, I'm not so sure if I saw your name or not but I know that you did work for the Herald for quite a long time in the 80s maybe as much as a decade finished off as managing editor, so I guess the story of its closing its doors hits home. Yeah, it was quite a shock because, I mean, I know print's in trouble across the board, but I never expected that. I just, it really was a shock. And I was hurt by it somewhat, you know? Well, once you've had... Now, like, if I left uh, this particular operation and BOSIM closes doors, I imagine it would hit me very similar to the news about the Herald is hitting you. So just walk us through some of your favorite memories of working for the Herald, because I know at one point you were doing an awful lot of arts coverage, went to probably every gig that took place in town. Yes, pretty much everyone during the 80s, except for the last last year or two of the 80s. So, And that was a very privileged time to be there, because I saw the... the all four Tina Turner concerts, um, all the other great shows that came through there. I met Tina Turner. Um, I can't say I hung out with her, but for a little while, it was great fun. So, so many adventures. And I also, even better than that, I was able to cover the the wonderful grand band from their beginning right up right up through, a, you know, all those eight years. Uh and that was really a privilege because I could sit down when I wanted to with uh, Ron Hines, with James Schneider, with 
Ben Simmons. And I think I even named a band for them one time. Like Ben Simmons and Ian Perry left the grand band. I, I called it the Ian Perry or the Simmons Perry Project. And then they said, yeah, that sticks. That'll work. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> you know, it was just an adventure. It really was. I couldn't believe they paid me to go in there. You know, for so many, it might have been in the day where, you know, the TV God, which was, that was our TV God, was the New Flan Herald, but it just sprinkled so many human interest stories, whether it be the arts and your coverage there, or Bob Hallett, or, or Ryan Cleary, the, the stories on politics and uh, business and all the rest of it. It really was a compilation of, a, there was something in it for everyone. There, there was. That was the, the, the whole purpose behind it, you know, the, the strategy behind it. And uh, for the longest time, it worked. I think one thing that hurt them, shortly after I came to work there full-time as a junior editor, uh, they raised the price from 50 cents to a dollar, and the circulation dropped from 60,000 down to 30,000. And I struggled in my time there. I got it back to 40,000, but I don't think it ever went much beyond that, maybe a little. But obviously that hurt them. You know, that decision to, to double the price, I, my, I said, don't do that. Go in increments, you know. Go to 65 cents, then go to 75 cents, and do it slowly. <laughs> but no, they, anyway, that's water under the fridge now. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a fair point, though, because sticker shock really does make people make quick decisions about whether or not they're any longer interested in it. Because, yeah. you know, especially when we're talking about how things change so quickly, whether it be in the world of broadsheet newspapers or periodicals like the Herald and others, it wasn't necessarily a, a failing to not change but the times, but in some part, it may be. If you know, if you could look at some missteps beyond, and I, I hate to be, you know, putting salt in the wound because a lot of people are feeling the pinch here today, and people have lost their jobs, and fans of the Herald are being without something they've grown accustomed to. It's just become yeah. a habit. You know, you go to the grocery store, you grab the Herald, you see yeah. it every time when you go to the checkout. So, what do you think could be done differently to save some of these uh, iconic members of the media? Well, with the Herald, I think one thing that they could have done better. And this is not a criticism of, of anybody in particular. And before even saying that, I think Pam Parody Gent did a great job in there in the last going off. She was a, f a powerhouse. Uh, but as you know, the cover once a month or so was somebody from NTV or Oz FM. And I think if those covers had been other Newfoundland celebrities, the once, uh, you know, the. Who knows? There's so many. My, my mind is awash in all the people that you know that should have been on the cover instead of, you know, the, the news people. And that would have, I think, elevated them a fair bit because I would have been paying more attention to to what was on the cover for sure if it was more local people and less NTV Oz FM. And there was a lot of the Queen. <laughs> well, there was apparently some of those sold well, and sure. so did the Elvis Presley ones, which I'll never understand. But you know, so some were legit, uh, but well, you know, weren't going with that. It's, I do. Yeah. So it's really unfortunate, and I know a lot of people who have worked uh, with the Herald over the years, and a couple there I know Pam pretty well, and uh, of course. One time I went over for a photo shoot, and Ryan Cleary's brother, Sean, I believe, was the photographer at the time. So it was a big part of people's uh, weekly or monthly routines is to peek through the Herald. It's, uh, it's a sad day for folks who not only work there, but for folks who just enjoyed the magazine. There was certainly always a copy of it in our house. And there were so many writers who got their start there who sure. went on to much bigger things. And some of them are big-time big producers now at CBC. 
and they got started there. So there's just too many to name. Jeff, I appreciate the time, and it's an unfortunate day for you and so many others. Yeah, thanks, Patty. Thanks for calling this morning, Jeff. Right on. Alrighty, bye-bye. Yep. The Herald, so almost, what was it, 76 years. Good run, but unfortunate. Uh, now, this is pretty scary stuff, and this is coming from the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary. Patrol officers, I'll read directly what they wrote. Patrol officers have responded to two events of persons sustaining injuries from a gunshot in the town of CBS on Uplands Road and Greeley Town Road. They believe these events are targeted. The suspect remains at large. The police are in large form in the area. Two males have sustained injuries, serious injuries, as a result of gunshot linked to these events. They've been transported to hospital to seek medical attention. So I guess if you're in CBS and surrounding area with this particular suspect still in the wind, if you don't have to be out around, probably don't get out around. So that's pretty scary when we hear stories like that. Hopefully this person is rounded up, apprehended, ASAP, final check on Twitter for the morning. We're uh, VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Follow us there. Offer your comments on what you hear. Make suggestions. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.